Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm a feminist, but I went on a feminist Jack the Ripper walking tour in <laughs> Whitechapel. And the reason it's feminist is because rather than concentrating on the criminal, it concentrates on the lives of the women. And it was very boring. Um, <laughs> because none of them murdered anyone. I love that that exists. I'm probably not going to go on it. It is actually really interesting. But uh, mainly because Jack the Ripper. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but when arriving here at the Edinburgh Festival, I cried before I got off the train as soon as I could smell the hops. If you've not been to Edinburgh, it smells like a brewery. And the reason I cried is because I lose my confidence for the first six to eight hours that I get off the train in Edinburgh, even if it's not festival season, because I'm being triggered from previous years <laughs> of months-long experiences of walking up hills in the rain to get to a venue with nobody in it. <laughs> and more than that, I used to think I was my own worst critic, and then I came to Edinburgh and discovered... <laughs> I discovered I was a fucking amateur. God, it's so true. Yeah. It's so true. I'm not doing a show here. I'm not performing. And every single list of the best comedian in Edinburgh has upset me. <laughs> that, that I'm not I on it. That I've not, not, my show's not been mentioned. And on awards day, even though I knew I did not have a show, yeah. I could not have been considered. It was still a disappointment. <laughs> I feel the same. I've only been up. I came up to open the Fringe. I did the opening address. And then I came back up. I did a show for Help Refugees. We did a show for Amnesty last night, Secret Prisons Podcast Live, which was amazing, which Sarah did. I was a bit disappointed as well that I wasn't nominated for the opening address. 
I'm a feminist, but I sometimes find it difficult to be happy for other women. Um, so, for instance, um, when my ex-boyfriend got a new girlfriend, rather than hoping that she would be happy with such a clever and interesting man, um, I, I hoped she doesn't like expensive dinners or presents because he owes me a huge amount of money. <laughs> It's hard to be a feminist, isn't it? It's hard. There are days <laughs> when it is a bit tricky. Mm. I'm a feminist, but up here at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, I have tickets for a feminist polemic about historical oppression, and instead I'm pretty sure I'm going to see a one-woman reenactment of the whole of Sex and the City. <laughs> I really want to see that. Do you want to go and see it together? Sex and the City. What time is it? Yes, please. I think, yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no yeah. matter what time it is, yes. Yes. <laughs> I will cancel <laughs> yeah, something cancel else I'm everything. in to go and see. I am a feminist, but sometimes I find it hard to be happy for other women. Um, for instance, when my dad got remarried and moved to Australia, rather than being happy that my stepmom had stolen my dad, um, I was <laughs> quite resentful. Um, when your dad moves to Australia, it's like that film, The Dingo Ate My Baby, um, <laughs> except the dingo is a nice lady from Adelaide and the baby is any chance I had at a life without abandonment issues. <laughs> uh, your own feminist butts are always the best, Sarah. They're, like Other people's are like things about... Did talking. I win? Yeah. <laughs> You, you've won, well, you've feminism. won. Other, people, yes. other people's always about things like plucking their eyebrows and stuff. And know. yours, yours you are very difficult. Do you know what I always want to say is I'm a feminist, but I find this really difficult because I'm actually very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a feminist, but backstage, uh, the producer came up and gave me a tank top that was given to me by some, I think some people who are appearing actually on the show to talk about their charity tomorrow and it's even got DFW stitched into the label and it says hashtag feminist fringe and, and my immediate out loud response was I'd love to wear that but I can't show my arms <laughs> live from McEwen Hall in Edinburgh the Spontaneity Shop presents the Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Sarah Pascoe, and very special guests Lisa Fa'alafi, author for two, Layla McLennan, and Daisy Jacobs, talking about disobedience. This is The Guilty Feminists, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White, and with me is Sarah Pascoe, and we're talking about disobedience. So, Sarah, how obedient do you think you are? I was thinking about this. I'm very obedient. Yeah, I think we're too obedient. We could be so much less obedient yeah. and not break the law. Oh, do way before we got to breaking the law. We're such conformists what, all the time. What, give me an example of doing something disobedient that isn't against the law. Okay, I'm, this is a spoiler. I went to see Hot Brown Honey <laughs> in London. The overwhelming feeling I had when I was watching them, like I cried a bit, and it was because I was just thinking, oh my God, I conform to all of these norms and I'm always sort of doing what I'm told. Like, for example, trying to look a certain way I don't think I've ever really stopped to consider, like, my gender expression. Like, when I was yeah. a child, that's what ladies looked like. Mm. And I've spent my life really... Even though I thought I have it, I thought I'd sort of got over that a bit and stuff. I think we all are trying to look like something that is clearly cultural and clearly taught to us as children, and it's sort of seeped in. And also just the way we... I don't know, we all just sort of sit in a certain way, and we... We say certain things and we do certain things and we're all... Do you know what I mean? And it's, to oh, some extent, okay. society needs to be... We know, so we're not bumping into each other. And That's what I think, because, yeah, I went to a country, and I won't name it, because I don't want to shame it, but they don't queue there. And um, <laughs> I had a terrible, terrible holiday from the airport onwards. Um, an airport I couldn't leave, because there was just no way of getting out of the door in an organised fashion. You just had to dash with your suitcases. That is a great example, Sarah, because I'm from Australia, and when I came here, I could not believe the way people queued. How lucky you were to be here. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. You're right. No. Yeah. 
people queue for buses here. It's so weird. But otherwise, we'd fight each other, right? Because we've got a lot of aggression, and we have to have a system which is like, yep, I might not like it, but this is how late I got here, and you're going to get on the bus before me. If we had a bundle, watch school children get on a bus. It's awful. It's like Australians getting on a bus. We just yeah. wait till it comes up, then everyone gets up, and you sort of just, you know, you're like standing up queuing before the buses arrive. But you're, you're hustling, Ooh. you're touching strangers, like in a cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it, gives it a nightclub atmosphere. <laughs> That's quite nice. That's actually a cultural example. Australia and Britain are obviously very, very similar culturally. And, uh, not, not spiderly. No. Very different spiders. No, even as I say that, I realise that I am speaking as a non-Indigenous Australian, and as soon as I said that, I went, hold on a minute. I wonder why that could be. Could it be because Britain colonised Australia? That's why, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, so uh, wrongly, Britain and Australia are very similar culturally. (laughs) Previously, the culture in Australia was more nomadic, and we fucked that up. Um, Apologies. Uh, which I believe our government has offered in a very half-hearted way. But what I'm saying is, I think as an example of, to be obedient here, you have to do one thing. To be obedient there, you do another. Mm. And I just don't think we notice the many, many, many coded ways that yeah. we just... Like, we go into the shop, yeah. and we go into the section that says, Ladies? What shop is this? Like a department store. <laughs> department um, store. It says women's wear, section. men's wear. Yeah. And we don't think about that. We don't go, Ooh. Do you know why, though? I actually think even if there weren't signs, I would still not want to wear man's trousers. I would still head for trousers that would fit me. I, um... <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like, why is it so... I just think we well, some, are some of it, directed. So, some of it is. I, some of it I do think is oppressive. But I also think in terms of like gender, I think there was exactly the same amount of things on men. Like, what we're talking about... Is, oh, completely. Yes. Oh, so it's, 100%. it's not just about women. And I think it's really good to question them. But some of it's just about ease. Like, some of it's just, oh, hey, if you want this kind of thing, it's over here. It's not, you must have a handbag. No, but if you saw a man knitting on a bus, you would look twice. I'd kiss him. (laughs) I would think it was so charming and delightful. You would, but it would be odd, because he's not really conforming or obeying. I've had three conversations with men about sewing this festival. I saw a play that was about sewing. It was really great. And um, three different men saying they want to start making their own clothes. That's amazing. And that's the kind of thing... Like, why is that wow, though? It shouldn't no, be that's wow. I, I don't it's think, madness I don't think it is, that that's wow. I don't think it is we, particularly wow. I think, no, but it is because of the history. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I do. No. I, 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 I definitely, definitely think there are insidious and explicit messages we get about gender. I just don't think that anyone really conforms that strictly. I think we all conform massively all of the time. And if people don't conform, they're remarkable. Like the fact that if a man looks after his children full-time, it's remarkable still. And that's changing, that's shifting. Yes. I think in two yeah, generations no, that won't be the case. Yeah. But I still think we are, in tiny ways, we could just be rebelling all the time. And that's what I felt when I saw Hot Brown Honey. Yes. Because they are just... I think they take joy in their disobedience. Yeah. And that's what it made me want to do. It made... Yeah. Is that Hot Run Honey laughing? (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to hear some stand-up comedy? Then please welcome to the stage the wonderful Sarah Pascoe! Um, Thank you so much. We're talking about disobedience, and I think I'm... I think I do obey the rules all the time. I'm a people pleaser. I don't like being naughty. But I was thinking about disobedience in general, and I was thinking about civil disobedience and the worst kind. And then, um, well, I remembered something that happened last year. I thought I was in a terrorist attack. It wasn't just me who thought that. Also, Ollie Murs um, <laughs> also believed it was a terrorist attack. This is last um, November. I was in Oxford Circus Station, and I was evacuated. We all were. There were um, announcements going off I'd never, ever heard before, saying that people had to leave the station, but it didn't say why, and it sounded very serious, and all of the trains were stopped. So suddenly you've got hundreds of thousands of people streaming out of Oxford Circus Station. Then there were police in high vis, and they were just telling people to move on, and people were asking, what's happening, what's going on? And they said, we don't know yet, we don't know yet, just keep moving, get out of the area. And um, all of the shops on Oxford Street were locking their doors and keeping people inside or outside, and they were bringing down um, the shutters at the back where they get their lorry deliveries, and those shutters sound a lot like... um rifle shots and so people started running and screaming in the street and um, there's this thing about being a 
a human being, we're a, we're a mammal. When people around us are scared, we get very scared as well. As people started running and screaming and they were like carrying children and dragging suitcases, I started running as well. And it's, it's the most physiologically scared I've ever been. And I felt so terrified and I didn't know what I was running from or towards. People were running in all kinds of different directions through Soho streets looking for somewhere safe and because they didn't know what they were trying to escape from, nowhere was safe. And I was thinking very selfishly, the unsafest place to be is with lots and lots of other people. Whatever's about to happen now, I need to hide from it. And um, there was a, a doorway, and it had the fairy lights around it on Diablo Street in Soho. And it was so strange as well, because I was so scared. I just wanted to call my mum. And um, so I ducked into this doorway, and I texted my mum. I said, can you look on the news? I don't know what's happened. Something's happened in Oxford Circus Station, and people are running and screaming. But as I was sending this text message, a woman at the top of the stairs she kind of um, bent her head down and looked at me and said, are you coming up? I started walking towards her. I said, I'm so sorry. I've just ducked in here. Everyone's running, screaming through Soho. There's been some kind of terrorist attack, but I don't know what it is, and I don't know what's happened, but they, they, something's happened in Oxford Circus Station, and the shops are all shut. And she went, oh, it's just London. It's just, <laughs> it's just London. Do you want a wax now you're here? <laughs> and... Um, and I had gone into a, a, a Brazilian hot waxing studio as <laughs> my, my place of safety. And, um, and, um, and, and this woman, and I've never had a, 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 well, this is the thing. So the woman, she was very calm. She gave me a shot of coconut liqueur uh, to, to calm me down. And she was just talking, she said, come on, look, it's all silly outside. Just have a wax now you're here. And, um, and, I, and I've, never, I've never had a Brazilian wax. And that's not like a feminist thing. Like I know for some people it's about, but for me, I'm a very hairy woman in general. Like I'm just hairy everywhere and I've just I deal with it that way going I'm one of the hairy ones um, I'm, a, I'm a fuzzy little peach um, like I'm, I'm just I've, I've never tried to try and contain it I think sometimes once you try to it's, it can become like a slippery slope well, oh, well it is now so um, so um, so uh, so the, 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 the woman uh, convinced me to have a Brazilian wax. It's this thing called um, liminal space, which is the idea where something happens that's so out of the ordinary for you, it kind of jolts you and you might behave in a completely different way. And in a way, almost it's kind of disobedient to the person that you thought that you were. I have discovered that when I think I'm in a terrorist attack, I show my vagina to a stranger. <laughs> something that would normally be so terrifying to me and I would be so shy I've just suddenly felt normal and she didn't even leave the room while I was changing I was just taking my clothes off in front of her and we were talking about basically how much we have all absorbed of fear and she was explaining she's younger than me but she was explaining that's the thing they call it terrorism it's supposed to scare you we're all scared we have all seen things happen to people who were just living their lives everywhere in the world and she everything she was saying was so wise and so correct and I was taking everything off and I lay down on the bed and she was kind of um uh, like uh, putting all this <laughs> uh, uh, hot wax all over my groin and then she was explaining to me but of course we, we realised that this is something that we created we were part of like this is something our government has created unrest in the Middle East and then as she laid down this kind of canvas strip on um, the, the top of my groin she went and of course it's all Bush's fault <laughs> and then ripped and it's the best thing because she didn't realise what she'd said and, 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 and why it was so funny. <laughs> and, uh, and I've never really ever told anyone that story either because it's not very on brand. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much. <laughs> guests today are from the amazing cabaret show Hot Brown Honey. Please welcome to the stage Lisa Farlaffy and Offer for Two. And could you just introduce yourself and maybe explain what Hot Brown Honey is? Uh, my name's Lisa Fatalafi. I am the director of Hot Brown Honey and also in it. We do all the things. What are we? We are a feminist theatre masterpiece? No. <laughs> Somebody wrote that, so we're with, just going to keep it. With, yes. With great arms. <laughs> yeah. Feminist theatre masterpiece. Yeah, Excellent. we got that. We got that in a review and we will be taking it. Yeah, um, yeah we like to blend all the forms, so theatre, cabaret, uh, hip-hop, soul, dance. circus, dance, yeah. and um, pretty much in your face, 75 minutes of 
brown women shouting at you. No. <laughs> Just kidding. And you're from Australia and New Zealand, is that right? Uh, we're all, we all live out of Australia. Yeah. And yeah, I have with me Afafotu. And yeah, my name is Afafotu and I'm a cast member as well. So I want to know, so when you were to see it, Deborah, it made you want to be more disobedient. And so I haven't seen the show yet and I've heard amazing things. So was that something that you were conscious of when you were creating the work? I think by nature, we laugh a lot. We have to laugh a lot in really terrible circumstances. When you live a life as a woman of colour, you experience a lot of things that make you feel angered and frustrated. But rather than yelling and screaming about it, we all kind of laugh about things and make jokes about it to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So the disobedience in that is our cheeky nature, is our way of being able to be ourselves, but also kind of state things and have people listen to us uh, laugh and then kind of realise like, oh, shit, that's about me. Um, Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, that's kind of what, well, that's my perspective anyways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it's been interesting, um, you know, often some people will say, oh, your show is quite angry or, you know, all the shouting. But we're just like, isn't that funny that just when women get on stage and be loud, and I'm talking like our music is loud, you know, like costumes are loud, everything about our show is loud, that that becomes confronting or angry. And because we're like, actually, it's like a joyous celebration. That's what I find it angry at all. No, I know, but we often get that in lots of reviews or talks or that's the first thing people take away. And I'm, I'm just like, no, we're just, we, you know, we've been silenced as First Nations women for, you know, thousands of years. All we're doing is speaking our experience and that becomes a controversial, angry thing. And I'm like, I don't I think it is. I wonder sometimes if someone can feel confronted about what someone's saying, it's not about the volume, it's about how it made them feel. It's actually totally. very subjective. Absolutely. You can watch something and suddenly realise that, oh, like you say, oh, that yeah. is me, or I didn't understand... And then actually, oddly, that then travels through you into, I was really lectured. (laughs) Or I was really shouted at when that isn't what was presented. And I think that stops people in their tracks. Like they can't actually see, they can't progress to the next item that's on stage because they're still feeling everything. And so with that new lens on them, they're like reacting to everything that then happens in a totally different way than if it were just to all kind of wash over you as you watch and kind of take things in. But then instead of that, they're like, oh, my Mm. back's against the wall and all I just keep thinking is that I'm being pushed further and further back. I think sometimes the same way that men are now finding some of the art and commentary coming from women confronting because it does flag up thousands of years of oppression that if even if they haven't actively participated in, they've benefited from. I think the same thing is happening with white people right now. And I know I watch things sometimes and I, I do feel confronted by it, but I think my feeling is that's good. If I feel uncomfortable or confronted, I think that's a good process. It's important. It's got to happen. The more I am friends with women of colour, the more I hear their daily stories, the more I realise how much harder it is. Like things like a friend of mine recently was about to get on a train and she said to the woman next to her on the platform, can I, I've got like a ticket for the five o'clock train. Do you reckon I can get on the three o'clock? And the woman next to her went, well, I've got the same, so I hope so. And that woman got on, fine, and then she went to get on and they wouldn't let her. And she said, but I know that woman has got on and they just said, oh, well, you can't, and the other woman was white. Mm. I hear stories like that all the time now and it's so consistent and I just realise I am part of that power structure and I have to ally up and shift something. Is your show more for other women of colour or is it more for the wider architecture of society to be understanding about what it's like to be a woman of colour? We definitely gift it to our other black, brown and mixed women because we do know how important that is as performers to see yourself on stage and and hear your stories and how empowering that can be. You know, that is why we do what we do because we have seen other women do it in the past. But also, like, the main... When we decided to sit down and properly write this show, it's a cry to everybody else to create change with us. Like, we wanted it to be a party and a celebration so that people feel like they can be a part of the change, be a part of the solution, because it can be just the smallest things that will impact our lives so hugely if you can switch somebody's brain up, which is, you know, like what Offer said, using comedy and using satire to break down the walls just for a second in that 75 minutes that you might feel a part of our experience or our story and be able to empathise and make some change. So it's a huge part. 
Yeah, and I think we say in the show, Hot Brown Honey is there to interrogate and kind of ask all the questions about your current views. And I think that that's really important in being able to have the discussion is if you feel it, uh, start to work through the vocab. Like the feeling into the mind, into like being able to talk about it is where the discussion needs to happen. And it's never going to be a comfortable starting, but you should start somewhere. Our whole thing is as long as you stop and you have a moment to sit in your jocks and feel that, <laughs> um, it's really important to start to develop the way that you can talk about that that's comfortable to you and also true to who you are but also in mind of all the people who you're trying to discuss with. So I wouldn't, you know, go up to any person of colour and just say, hey, give me an education. I would, I, would, I would get to know them like you would with anyone and develop that relationship over time so you can have those conversations. Yeah, and just being close friends with women of colour, you it's a bit like men who don't have any friends who are female. You can't really know it. It's just sort of that daily, day-to-day, what happened to you today? You know, oh, how was your morning? Oh, so frustrating because this happened. And you go, oh, oh, that's interesting. That wouldn't happen to me. Yeah. And it's that understanding. But I think what you're doing is you're allowing people to experience that in 75 minutes through music and comedy and with joy. And so I left with so many different emotions that I'd never felt at any other theatre show, actually. How important is comedy in your show? (laughs) It's so important. We love laughing. I mean, you can hear us howling over there. It's so important because I think as a language for that, that kind of overcomes anyone's background, whether it's economically, wherever, where they've grown up in class, culturally, it's like you know, the slapdash way that we laugh at things is also very visual and not just in the satirical things that we say on stage. It's in the act of... Uh, spoiler alert? Yeah. <laughs> it's in the act of being subjected to being... Like, so I had boobs at the age of, like, eight. I got my period when I was nine. I had hips by the time I was nine as well. And so when I would run, uh, my tits would just like bounce up and down and everybody all the boys and girls in the class would just watch me when I was doing running like this I never got what they were looking at but they were all nodding in agreement for some reason (laughs) and so the act now that I get to do in the show where I get to bash people with my boobs (laughs) with these gigantic melanous, huge, gigantic boobs is really freeing for me personally as a performer, but as a visual thing, that's really important for people to see, especially for people who have had and been well-developed from a very young age and sexualized from that time forward. That act is important in that (laughs) respect. And so we laugh at that. And I love looking as angry and terrifying as possible. Um, Which for any of the males that I come across, which is consensual, I will stand for a moment and I will go like this. And for some reason, they're just... So glazed over look and a leaning forward. <laughs> and I, I take that as a yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really important in that aspect of, you know, these are our stories. These are our bodies. You know, someone with the washboard abs like this one and uh, beautiful boobs too. To someone who looks like me, it's really important to play on all of those things. Mm, yeah. yeah. There's an amazing piece that plays on that sort of the idea of the like the Elvis Presley uh, view of indigenous women. It's so incredible. It's sort of like a satire on this idea of indigenous women being romanticized and sexualized and sort of fetishized. And it's funny, but it's also it just makes you see the world in a different way. How important is music in terms of how it can make people feel in your show? Uh, huge, I think. You know, we, we love music. We love the journey that uh, music can take people on. And, you know, it's like all elements are like super stylized in our show. So, yeah, I mean, we have, we're unfortunately sorry for the older folk that have been coming to our shows have been holding their ears like this because we're taking you into the club. We want you to feel the bass through the floor. We want, we want you to have some sort of emotional response physically yeah, as well. Yeah, completely sensory. Yeah, yeah rather than sort of obeying and conforming and going along with the way society sees you and the way you're meant to behave in society and that you're meant to not make any trouble, what you're doing 
is just bursting out of all of those things and taking charge. I feel like there's so much authority coming off you on the stage. And I feel like we are, in a way, we are your subjects for that 75 minutes and we have to be in your world. Watching it, I felt like this is what it would be like if women of colour ran the world. And it's a lot better. Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Deborah briefly interrupting your podcast to let you know the Guilty Feminist is playing the Royal Albert Hall, the actual big Royal Albert Hall on the 7th of July. It's an afternoon performance, so people outside London will be able to get trains and get home for the evening. Tickets start at only £10 and they are available now if you go to guiltyfeminist.com. It is going to be a lineup like no lineup you've ever seen from the Guilty Feminist before. If you've enjoyed a tour show, Get in, book tickets for the Royal Albert Hall because it's going to be absolutely spectacular. Now, the Guilty Feminist is teaming up with Amnesty International to bring back the legendary Secret Policeman. This show started in the 1970s with Monty Python and has been one that has featured comedy greats every decade since. We are bringing a diverse and incredible lineup to the Hackney Empire for the Secret Policeman's tour on Wednesday, the 5th of June. On the bill, you will see Francesca Martinez, Juliet Stevenson, Sindhu V, Desiree Birch, Funbi Omateo, Grace Petrie, Jess Foster Q, Alison Spittle, Kima Bob, Ophelia Loverbond, Sophie Duca, and Siobhan McSweeney, who plays Sister Michael in the Derry Girls. Go to hackneyempire.co.uk for tickets. And if you're going up to the Edinburgh Fringe, there are three guilty feminist shows at the Pleasance Grand and a Secret Policeman's tour show too. Go to edfringe.com and check those out too. And also, The Guilty Feminist book is out in paperback and includes two new interviews, one with Hannah Gadsby and one with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Pick it up now. And now, back to the podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Cast. Please welcome to the stage, Deborah Francis White! Uh, so many of you know I used to be a Jehovah's Witness, if you listen to the podcast regularly, and I'm now an atheist who believes if there is a God, they're non-binary. Um, so when I was a Jehovah's Witness, I, I don't know what your idea of a paradise is, but the Jehovah's Witness idea is very specific. You will have seen it probably on the front cover of a Watchtower magazine. The Jehovah's Witness idea of paradise is this, people in national dress passing fruit to one another. <laughs> For eternity, just back and forth, back and forth. And the reason is, in the paradise, Sarah Pascoe are like this, we are all going to be vegan. Paradise is not heaven, it's earth being restored to a paradise, like it was in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, everyone was vegan. And you will have noticed on the front of cover of the Watchtower as well, there's usually like a lion playing with a toddler, which has probably caused alarm in some of you, but it shouldn't because the lions will also be vegan. <laughs> it's true. This is your paradise, Sarah. I mean, you should become a Jehovah's Witness because you would love it. I mean, to be fair, that's the only element you would enjoy, so don't. Um, so that's what I believed, and I would spend my time going out knocking on doors and telling people about that. But that was really the only place that women were allowed to speak. 
because in the Kingdom Hall, which is the Jehovah's Witness Church, women are not allowed to speak on the platform. So the men get up and they do sort of like what you'd think of as a sermon. And no woman has ever spoken in that place. And the thing is, I only became a Jehovah's Witness when I was 14. I was baptized at 16. So I already had a lot of experience speaking because I'd done a lot of speech and drama. I debated at school. And I found it really difficult to be quiet And uh, one thing that I discovered that I could do secretly, because you were never allowed to do anything like this because it was considered worldly. Worldly is the opposite of anything good. Um, So was uh, I found out that there was an improvisation group nearby to where I lived, like a comedy improvisation group. So I found three other Jehovah's Witnesses. And, I mean, we could not tell the elders or we'd get banned. So we snuck off to these improvisation classes and had a sort of whose eternal life is it anyway type... (laughs) type group but the thing is they knew the people at the improv group knew that we were weird we couldn't tell them we were jehovah's witnesses because one they'd think we were weird and two we would be bringing jehovah's name into reproach because we shouldn't have been doing it so we had to hide that we were jehovah's witnesses but they knew there was something weird about us because we couldn't do any scenes about sex or death (laughs) did a lot of fruit-based work um Could I have a fruit, please? Any fruit? Can I have an animal? An animal. It's great. This scene will be about a kangaroo eating a watermelon. Um, we were so naive and innocent and virginal. And you know when you can just tell when people are sort of... Like, we were too old to be that unworldly, really. And so I was doing this secretly and doing this sort of little bit of comedy. And then, of course, the elders found out and it got banned and we weren't allowed to do it anymore. And one of the elders said it was the reason that two of these other young people in the congregation had started snogging. And um, he did. He, I said in my head, I'm fairly sure that's hormones, not comedy improvisation. But he felt it was the comedy. Anyway, so they got banned from snogging and we got banned from space jump. And uh, give, me a, give me a word from the audience. So there was really no outlets at all. But there were two things that you were allowed to do as a woman. And one of them was in the Watchtower study. So there'd be the public talk, which a man would do, and then another man would get up, and there'd be a study article in the Watchtower. And then, so one man would read a paragraph from the study article, and then another man would ask a question that was at the bottom of the paragraph. And then anyone in the congregation could put their hand up, man or woman, and answer it. Um, But you're meant to put it into your own words so that it's clear you've understood it. So I thought, right, I will put it into my own words. And after that, I had two missions every Sunday. One, how many times could I get picked? Two, how many laughs could I get? (laughs) This is how I learned to do stand-up. It won't be funny to you, but I'll tell you. See, here's an example. The paragraph would say something like, in the upcoming district convention, it is a temptation for sisters to uh, dress in an ostentatious fashion and not consider spiritual things. As 1 Timothy 4.16 says, we should have an eye for godly devotion and not the showy display of one's means of life. Don't look that up, it's not the right scripture. (laughs) They'd say, what should sisters be aware of in the upcoming district convention? So I would put my hand up and I'd say, I believe the, uh, the, the title of the next convention is the Divine Peace Convention, not the Divine Fashion Convention. Am I right, sisters? And people loved it because it was the only interesting thing that would happen in their whole week. And then we also were allowed to do little plays. Once a week there was a meeting about, uh, it was called the Theocratic Ministry School. And it was to learn how to go to the doors. And men were allowed to do talks, but women were allowed to do little plays. So you basically go like this. Hello? Hi. I was just wondering if you ever worried about the future. Yes, I do. Why don't you come in? Which they never said in real life. (laughs) And then... The sister would show the other sister three scriptures and then she'd say, this is brilliant. My eyes have been opened. Please come back next week. Never once happened in the real world. But you were allowed to do these little plays. Now, a lot of sisters didn't like doing the plays because it was scary because it was in front of a big audience. And so they'd phone in sick on the day. And then the man who was running the school would just cover it. So I went to him and I said, if you ever get anybody pulling out, I'll do it on the day. Just tell me. I'll improvise it. I'll make it up. Give me literally 10 minutes and I will cover for anybody. So I became the professional understudy. (laughs) And I was only meant to get like two talks a year. In fact, I got 25. (laughs) And what I discovered was Jehovah's Witnesses found nothing funnier than taking the piss out of the born-again Christians. (laughs) 
So I would make every character I talked to a born-again Christian or similar and somebody who didn't know the Bible very well because the Jehovah's Witnesses, if nothing else, do know the Bible. And then I would ask her a series of questions, get her to read from her own Bible until she realized she was very wrong. And then the Jehovah's Witnesses, that's not funny to you, but in the Broadbeach Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, that killed. (laughs) So much so that I got asked to demonstrate it at a district convention that was like a stadium like Wembley. I started my comedy career in essentially Wembley Stadium (laughs) and have worked my way back. Thank you very much. Our next guests are from the refugee mentoring organization Roots, spelled R-O-U-T-E-S. Please welcome Layla McLean and Daisy Jacobs. Hey, I'm Daisy. And I'm Layla. And we run Roots, which is a social enterprise that supports refugee and asylum-seeking women. Amazing. So can you please tell us about it? and how we can get involved in it. Yes, absolutely. So Leila and I both felt quite outraged at how unjust the asylum system in the UK is at the moment. And the fact that, especially as a woman, you can arrive in a country with an incredibly hostile political environment. You can be living on £35 a week, in and out of court for months, maybe years, in a language that you potentially don't understand, with potentially no social connections and social networks. And if you're an asylum seeker, you can't work. And so we realized that we probably weren't going to be able to fix the asylum system, but we could provide some of the support that we thought wasn't there. And for us, the way that we did that is through theater. And both of our experiences are in theater. Both of us have directly experienced the transformative powers of theater, both in terms of confidence and communication and creating a community. And so, yeah, we've developed Roots. So we run theatre workshops every week and we've worked with over 100 women already from 30 different countries and we create this community in these theatre workshops and it's all about developing language in a fun, social environment, really supportive and the wonderful women that come also were really keen to meet and connect with other women who are more settled and stable in their lives. And so that's why we have now launched Mentoring, which pairs every woman that we work with and comes to our workshops with a mentor. Ah. Yes. And how do you find the women? How do you reach out and contact them when often they might be quite isolated? We work with a number of amazing organisations that already work with women from refugee and asylum-seeking backgrounds. At the moment, we're just working in London, and we're really lucky to have made connections with some great organisations like Women for Refugee Women and other organisations like Breaking Barriers, um, Yeah, which is great. And in terms of our mentors, because we work with such a wide range of women, as Leila said, from lots of different countries, various different sets of experiences and skills, um, various different sets of goals and ambitions for what they want their life to be in the UK, we need a set of mentors that reflect that diversity as well. So that could be from helping somebody to send an email or log on to their universal credit account online to retraining as a solicitor or passing a GCSE to allow them to do their higher education, learning the cello, one of our women wants to learn the cello or do gardening. There is a huge range of things, setting up your own food business. So we're really lucky to have already an amazing set of mentors. But if you think all of the amazing women out there that you can offer any one of those things that I've just mentioned or anything else at all, then we would really, really so love to hear from you. So people can just apply through your website and say, oh, I can do this. I can play the cello in the garden. Would <laughs> 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 anyone like to learn? Um, and what about funding? So are you kind of obviously independently funded? Yeah, know? which is important to us because often with funding it is restricted, mm. so especially with asylum seekers. Yeah. And so that means that some support is cut off from them. Yes. So all of our mentors are sponsored by their employer with the recognition that being a mentor is a really good opportunity for you to practice your leadership. Mm. And we also provide training for all of the mentors, so their employers will pay for their place. So the employer of the mentor pays how much to whom? So <laughs> they pay. Are you checking that they're not really rich off the back of this? Because <laughs> that was very aggressive. Like, so you're cashing in, are you? <laughs> <laughs> the asylum no. seekers. Yeah. Okay. 
I just want it to be clear because people need clear instructions. Otherwise, they yeah. write to me and go, but I don't understand. And also, so, I think about the restriction that, just to clarify that, basically, our government does have money mm. that's supposed to support things, mm-hmm. but it comes with but only if you do this, which is practical, yeah, exactly. or only if you do this. Often anything that involves creativity... Anything that involves the cello is a dead no. It's just like, <laughs> fuck off. Or, no. anything, that involves, <laughs> or we, anything that involves people who don't have refugee status in the UK. Yes. So if you're in that limbo stage where you've just arrived and you're in and yeah. out of court, you're signing in at the Home mm. Office every month, you can't receive support yes. beyond ESOL classes. Yeah. And there can be a three-year waiting list for English language classes mm. at the moment. Well, yeah, they had, that was the first thing the Tories cut, was uh, yeah. learning English as a foreign language, mm-hmm. which... We, and then they say yeah. people don't assimilate enough. Yeah. Mm. I think what's so important about organisations like yours, obviously there's the practical level, but I think there are so many people in Britain who feel so sad and increasingly more so about how bad the world is. And there are little pockets of things that are so clever and mm. obvious and amazing and people are dedicating their lives to doing it. I am... Um, we did, did... No, I was going to say we did a gig. You, you, I did a gig. <laughs> um, <laughs> for, um, for the organisation. And there's lots of them who give refugees bicycles. And so there's one in London. They redo bikes up and then you buy it and then with that they give a refugee a bicycle because often, very often... I mean, obviously it's a free way to get around. Mm. You, you teach them to cycle and then you, there's a, an element of autonomy and freedom that wasn't there before. Mm. Yeah, there's one in there's Edinburgh. One in Edinburgh too. There's one in Thank Cambridge. It's actually, so Google it wherever you live. Um, because there's those kind of things where suddenly you can do this really positive thing. Mm. And often people, that's what you wonder is, or how. Also, there's an app, this is completely off topic. <laughs> there's an app for blind people. You can help them look through their. So basically, sometimes a blind person might be getting dressed and they don't know if their shirt matches their trousers, or they don't know if the can's in their cupboard, which yeah. one is peaches and which one is spaghetti. And you just go on the app, and then anyone in the world, you can go, oh, yeah, it's peaches. Oh, wow. See you later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So those things are just so useful. Yeah. I kind of want that now, even though I have no use for it. <laughs> no, you're, the, you're the eyes. Oh, I'm the eyes. You can't, you can't ask if your shirt matches your trousers. <laughs> but I just want that. Can I not get that sort of more like fashion advice? Like, do you think... I think it goes... Is it too bland? I don't know. <laughs> Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Deborah just saying thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who's come out for our live tour and made it so extraordinary. Lots of the dates have started to sell out now, so please, please, please get your tickets now if you would like to come and see us on Wednesday in Southampton, Thursday in Sheffield, Friday in Coventry, Saturday in Plymouth, Sunday in Brighton, or the following week in Glasgow, Leicester, Nottingham, or Woking. It really has been a spectacular time. It's like Feminist Gospel Church. Come out and join us and hopefully see you there. You're right, Sarah. There are so many clever people who are compassionate and loving and proactive. And I really do think the answer to the world's problems at the moment is that the compassionate people, we have to have more get up and go than the uncompassionate people. Because it's easy to feel compassion, but are we doing anything? So we're very excited that you're doing this, and we're happy to support it. It's a UK organisation, just we have international listeners. If you're in another country, you might be able to find something similar in your country. And if you can't, please start it. Um, And you can go onto our website and sign up to be a mentor. Yeah. So if you want to be a mentor, what if you're a, a company, freelancer? Any companies listening? Yeah, yeah, any companies as well who want to sponsor a whole programme, we'd yeah. be very happy for that to happen. That would be great. Because <laughs> if, if Sarah free... Pascoe, she's a freelancer, if she wanted yeah. to do it, she doesn't have a company. There is, there's a discount if you're paying as an individual. We didn't want to totally write off the fact that people might want to pay to do this themselves. And like we said, it's not just business skills that we're looking for. It's also things like playing the cello in the garden. You're going to be, be so really deluged with cello players. <laughs> But yeah, you can pay as an individual. Would you, Hot Brown Honey, would you be interested in teaching refugees to do some of the amazing dancing and things that you do? Yeah, absolutely. We would. And we all have different kinds of skills, been wearing different hats. So that would be amazing. We should see if we can hook that up. But if you'd like to be a part of that, Roots, R-O-U-T-E-S. Yes. Our website is weareroots.com and Twitter is at rootswomen. Great. R-O-U-T-E-S. Please get in touch. And if you want to see Hot Brown Honey, where do you go? Uh, you can get us on Twitter, so our handle, just Hot Brown Honey, Instagram, follow all us on Facebook. Great. Okay, so Google Hot Brown Honey and find out if they're coming to a theatre near you. Charity of the Week, where are you? Thank you. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Nabu, 
Um, now I want to tell you about Ubuntu Women's Shelter. We are um, a women's shelter, night shelter, that is uh, dedicated to provide um, emergency and short-term accommodation and shelter to women, to non-binary, trans, cisgender people. We also open to people from different faiths, uh, all faiths and religious persuasions. And it is people who um, find themselves destitute as a result of no recourse to public funds. Um, we are collective um, and we are based in Glasgow. We are run by, um, by people who have direct experience of destitution, of the asylum process and immigration. We are also designed to obviously meet the um, immediate and pressing needs of those women who are excluded from um, public access in terms of housing, welfare services, and also homelessness. So um, what we need is to open our doors in terms of starting providing the service. We are uh, securing a lease in a central Glasgow location to start that work. What we would like to do long term is to have our own assets, our own property, so we can have control over our business in, in terms of how that functions. You can get in touch with us at infoubuntu forward slash Glasgow dot org dot uk or you can do online donations at chuff.org forward slash project forward slash Ubuntu Women's Shelter. Thank you. Great. Thank you. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Sarah Pascoe, and our very special guests, Lisa Fala-Afi, Eleanor Wangura, Layla McLennan, and Daisy Jacobs. The recording engineer was Gary Boyle. Music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Salinsky for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Tony and Hannah at PBJ Live and everyone at The Underbelly, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Have we got... No, there's one chair on each side. Oh, okay. All right. Do you want to... Do you want to... I don't know. Tom, what are we meant to do? (laughs) A man can fix it. There we go. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.